Well, hey everybody, welcome to .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers. In New London, Connecticut, this is Carl Franklin. And hey, this is Mark Dunn in Atlanta, Georgia. What's up, Mark? Hey, not much, Carl. How are you doing? So I was just, this is Tornado Day, or yesterday was Tornado Day, where there was something like 24 tornadoes that touched down at different places in the United States. And I was just reading and looking at the news, and they're all headed towards you. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that, since I'm, I'm like, you know, a complete geek. I don't really do anything except uh, sit in front of my computer all day long, so I don't watch the news. I was completely unaware that, uh, you know, I'm the target of many tornadoes. Basically, the cold air came down from Canada, and the warm air came up from the Gulf Stream, and they sort of met in the middle and exploded. And tornadoes went everywhere, uh, and, and about 25 people, uh, as of this recording, have been killed all over the United States. There was a whole bunch that sprouted in that whole uh, sort of southeastern corridor going up as far as Pennsylvania. And so now they're, they're pushing down to the southwest, and it's going to go right through Georgia. In fact, it's probably in Georgia right now as we speak. Well, yeah, if I, if I go off the air abruptly, you'll know the reason. <laughs> well, anyway, this is the first show that we've done since the uh, Dev Connection show which I just loved. I think the whole thing was great. You know, we went down there, we set up the microphones, we talked to all these people, and uh, it was a great show, wasn't it? Yeah, man, that was awesome. I really enjoyed it. It's like a big family reunion. You know, we, we kind of see the same faces there as far as speakers, and, uh, you know, it's, it's wonderful to get together with those guys. Oh, it's awesome. There's people that I never see except for when I go do shows, and uh, they're like old friends. Yeah, I got to meet uh, Inga Rammer while I was uh, I was down in Orlando. That that was incredible. Yeah, we've been He's talking a, about He's a it. younger guy than I I ever figured. He is uh, 22 or 23. Yeah, he's a kid, a mere baby. You know? <laughs> I asked him if he'd ever written any other books. He said, "No, this is my first. That was yeah, an amazing. Yeah, what, a, what thing. a great book to come out the gate with. Oh man. Yeah, I mean, I I still think he has the definitive book on .NET remoting. Well, that's everybody seems to think that. Um. Although there are lots of other books on it, uh, he you know he sort of takes it down to a level like Billy Hollis said, where few very few people are going to go. So while we were down at the show, I got this email from uh, the regional director list about uh, the Pet Shop Two version two, and uh, we've been talking about this Pet Shop application ever since the very first episode when Pat Hines talked about it. And so basically, what happened is the Java community went back and and did a, uh, a a new version of it. And the best they could come up with is uh, not even half as fast as .NET. That certainly looks good for .NET. Yeah. So, um, uh, and now, of course, they're crying foul and uh, because they, they're they saying that it wasn't optimized for performance, but that was the whole point of the pet shop thing in the, to begin with. And so... Uh, so they're saying that the version that they did in J2EE was not optimized for performance. That's right. And also they use technologies. They pick technologies that weren't optimized for performance. But I thought that was the point of the whole Pet Shop application was to show how much faster and more scalable .NET is than J2EE. Yeah, I thought the same thing, you know. Well, anyway, maybe our guest tonight will have something to say about that. He's... Uh, he, what can I say about our guest? He's a superstar. He's a, a developmentor, trainer, and author, and he has a .NET website or two. 
<laughs> I guess you could say that. Looking yeah, he's at like the, the Elvis in the in the technical community. Yeah, he really is. Uh, I'm looking at the list he sent me of all of his websites that all start with www.sellsbrothers.com. Uh, would you please welcome to the show again, uh, this time as a guest, not as a caller, Chris Sells. Hi, guys. What's up? Hey, Chris. What's up, man? Oh, well, I'm just uh, happy to be in Oregon where uh, no tornadoes ever touch down because I'm originally from uh, Minnesota where we have more than our share. Yeah, so I've never been to Oregon. I mean, you know, what, what's Oregon like? Oregon is um, covered with 50% trees. Actually, it's 51, and they have all kinds of state laws in place to make sure that that's exactly what happens. <laughs> And uh, it's gorgeous. Um, when it's when it's not raining, it is just the most um, wonderful weather you can imagine. It is always um, mild in the summer. It never gets too hot. It never gets humid. There's no bugs. Uh, the worst thing in the summer you have to worry about in Oregon is uh, slugs, and uh, they almost never make it over the 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 doorway. So you know it's not like bugs where you have to screen yourself in. Being from uh, Minnesota, you know the whole bug thing and the heat and the humidity. So Oregon is wonderful. Mark, you don't have any bugs in Atlanta, do you? Well, you know, we only use bugs as a way to get around uh, down here. You know, <laughs> they're uh, they're big. Mosquitoes are bigger than you can imagine. Well, I like there's some um, there's a uh, something I like to say to my uh, Midwest friends when I go home for the summer. I like to tell the story about how so far after 10 years of Oregon in Oregon, I still haven't killed as many mosquitoes as I would routinely kill in one swat. In Minnesota, yeah, we do have some bugs down here in the south. Isn't the uh, mosquito the state bird of Minnesota? Yes, it is. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> Minnesota is the land of ten thousand mosquito pools. <laughs> <laughs> so, what made you decide to leave Minnesota? Uh, well, yeah, you know, I was up there on the Iron Range, you know, and uh, you know, I got a call from uh, uh, Andy Grove at Intel, and he said, "Gosh, I know you spend all your time uh, in the evenings with your Macintosh at home." on Unix at work, and so we've got the worst of both for you. We've got Windows 3.1. Come on down and program that for us. And that's what I did. Well, and the rest is history. So it's and and actually, then it got a lot better with Windows 95, and it's been getting steadily better ever since, uh, up until they got it right with Windows 2000, and even more right with XP. So tell me your history since Intel. So I was at Intel for two and a half years, which is all I could stand. It's a giant that? bureaucratic company. Right, and I'm just not that kind of guy. I've worked at big companies, I've worked at small companies, I've worked at startups, and mm -hmm. I've found out that I have a personality that is uniquely suited to a company of exactly one. Yeah, <laughs> I'm I not in charge you. of anyone. No one's in charge of me. I just work with my friends, and it works out really well. So what happened then? So um, after two and a half years at Intel, um, I went to a, uh, a course at a local, um, like an extension course. It was a five-day short course. And um, they were giving uh, uh, a, a course on this new technology called Olay. And um, I, seen, I saw that they had already had one, and I missed it. So I sent the organizer an, uh, an email, and I said, gosh, I'd really like to take your next Olay course. And they said, well, we're not, we don't have one scheduled, but if you want to get you know, some of your friends together, we need this many people, and we'll set up a course for you. So I, I spammed all of Intel Oregon something like, you know, 15,000 employees at the time, and said, you know, I need some people to come to a class with me. And about 20 of us went, and it turns out that we went 
to the second ever teaching of Don Box giving Essential Olay. Wow. Which eventually became Essential Calm. Right. And um, uh, Monday at lunch, Don was telling um, an interview story. And even then, right, he wasn't famous, but he was still so charismatic that he was just holding court right. at lunchtime, and everyone was just crowded around him. And he was telling a story about how he has a weed-out question, a specific question that he asks all interview candidates. Um, and, in fact, this question was asked of all developmental instructors for about five years. Hmm. Um, and he would ask them this just as a weed-out question. And um, he told, told us about the question, and it was something very obscure and C++-specific, and it wasn't so much that he wanted the details of how it worked. He wanted the details of why it was that way. And I couldn't help myself. I'm just a type A-plus personality. He was asking the questions. <laughs> yeah. And the guy on the other end couldn't answer the phone, or he was telling the story about how the guy on the other end couldn't answer the question. So I just popped out the answers. And after doing that a couple of times, he looked at me and he said, do you want to work for me? And um, by that evening, since I'd organized the course and he was up in California all by himself, I felt obligated to you know, entertain the guy. So I brought him to dinner downtown Portland, and we went to the giant city of books in Portland. We hung out, and by the end of the evening, he was interviewing me for an instructor position. Hmm. At the end of the week, what, his what year was this, Chris? Was this? What year this was this? Was the end of 1994. So he was in 1994. He was uh, teaching. He had developmentor going, or yes, in fact, for a year. Cool. So many instructors were on staff when you joined, Chris. Uh, I think I was um, something like employee number 12. Wow. So you uh, you've seen a lot develop there. I've seen a lot of de development at Developmentor, yes. Yeah. So the, the Developmentors really was built around Don, was it not? And Actually, his, uh, um, the Developmentor was built around two people, Don and Mike, Mike Abercrombie. And he ran all the business stuff, and he said, Don, go and build the technical staff. Build whatever you want. Build the right stuff. Build it well. Mm -hmm. Give it to us, and we will sell the hell out of it. And that's right. where Developmentor came from. So I guess the the, the primary uh, market, or if you will, the, the the average programmer that would go to a developmentor class for a long time was a a C plus plus developer, right? Actually, yes. I mean that is absolutely true. Whether it was classic C plus plus, Win thirty two, Com, Olay, HEL, MFC, yeah. but we've always had almost since day one a Visual Basic curriculum as well. Hmm. This is a good uh, time to bring up a point for the listener, is that, uh, you know, obviously, Developmentor and Franklin's Net, you know, we're sort of competitors in the VBNet training area, but uh, even though that's true, uh, you know, we certainly don't have any issues with that, or it's not going to prevent us from talking about anything, because uh, we certainly have a lot of respect for each other as uh, as developers and in trainers. In fact, we could compare uh, salaries, if you like. Yeah, we on. certainly could. Okay. <laughs> so tell me about just just pick one of the websites that you uh, do that you'd like to talk about. Well, I I pretty much just have the one website. I just sent you individual you know sub earls from those websites. Um, Salesbrothers.com is the main homepage, and uh, for a long time I was doing so many different things, and people were having such a hard time finding this stuff. Yeah. Um. In fact, they would they would um, ask me a question at a conference. And I would say that the answer is on my website, and here's where it is. And they'd say, oh, I love your website. I, I've been to this part or that part, but I didn't know there was other parts. Well, let me ask you this. I see from the list I'm looking at four pages that basically are similar. You have Windows Developer News, then the Cells Spout, which I imagine is like a blog or something. 
and Sells Brothers News, and then Chris Sells on .NET. I mean, what's the difference between all those? Sure, things? not a problem. Um, so the first one you mentioned was Windows Developer News. Mm-hmm. Okay, Windows Developer News is a com- it's my own little uh, slash dot like posting public posting uh, place for yep. um, Windows developers. Okay, I was there's one for the Macintosh guys, there's one for the Linux guys. But so you're still a Mac guy. Uh, no, I haven't been a Mac guy for a long time. Okay. You got help at some point. <laughs> you saw well, the light. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it wasn't until the recent uh, release of um, the Mac OS, and I do mean like the dot .2 release, that it was a real OS that I could actually use. Right, because it's based on uh, on uh, FreeBSD, right? It is, yes. Yep. So, anyway, Windows Developer News is just a little place where I post the things that I see in the community that I consider interesting Okay. Um, as I surf around and get my emails or whatever. It's also the place where I post what I'm doing, you know, that day on my website. So when I do something interesting on my website or that I consider interesting, I also post it um, at the very front. So you have the cells th- cam, you know, follows you into the bathroom and I stuff. We're going to see you on Fox. <laughs> I don't. I'm, I'm one of those big funny looking geeks that you really don't want to <laughs> look at too closely um so so you know the, the idea there and p- people can post their own stuff and they do right people post their own news articles there and it's all exposed via an rss feed hmm. so that people can just you know if they like rss it'll just notify them when something interesting happens so i, I have to be the by. i have to be the acronym please and, and ask you to define rss it stands for even yeah, if we don't know the what it stands syndicated for. is in there somewhere. And what is it? Okay, so what it is, is it's a little uh, hunk of XML that describes new things that have happened on your website. That's exactly what it was built for. Hmm. So and it's, it's just a, a bunch of bloggers use it to say, here's, you know, here's my current thoughts. A bunch of news services all over the world, thousands, use it to publish their news. For example, I'm great. subscribed to like a couple of BBC um, hmm. RSS feed. So it's so a standard way somebody can go to your website and download a file and they know exactly what format it's in. Well, essentially what you do, yeah, I mean, it's 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 an RSS feed, which means it's a specific XML format. And what okay. you do is you feed the URL of it into an RSS reader, just like a news reader or yeah. a mail reader. Yeah. And it will pull it on a periodic basis looking for new things since the last time it looked. Great. So RSS is a pretty cool way to keep up on news in various areas, and I just expose that from my website for okay. the Windows developer. So what about the cell spout? Now, the cell spout I invented um, because I had a bunch of stuff to say that had no technical merit whatsoever. <laughs> Just crap I wanted to say that day. I, I had an epiphany. I thought something was cool or stupid or fun or whatever, and I just couldn't not write it. Um, I'm afflicted with a common affliction amongst authors because <laughs> probably don't know this. There's very little money in book writing or article writing. Um, it's mostly uh, to help you know, people know um, who you are. It's, my friend used to say, my friend Dan Weston, who encouraged me to write my first book, said, um, you know, a book is like a 400-page resume. I especially like never send an email in anger. That was one of the best yeah. ones. <laughs> but which has no technical merit whatsoever. It's, it's just so a true, though. Lesson. It's a valuable lesson. Yes, totally. And I still want to see that UI built for Outlook. Save career, <laughs> ruin career. That's right. <laughs> Uh, hey, Chris, you mentioned uh, the weed-out question that, that Don Box had. You also have a collection of uh, of questions that uh, Microsoft uses for interviews, don't you? I do, yes. 
Now, I I thought that was very interesting. Uh, what what's your favorite one of those? Actually, my favorite one is the very first one on the list, and it will always be the first one because it's the first one I heard, and I heard it at my um, interview later that same week of Essential Olay, asked by Don. And he had just been up at Microsoft hanging out with his new Microsoft friends because he was one of the few people on the planet that could understand the value of common Olay at that point. And they, um, uh, uh, Sarah Williams told him um, a, uh, an interview question that, they, that she uses in her interviews. And it's, a, it's probably the most famous Microsoft interview question there is. And we got to the end of the interview, and he said, yeah, you got the job, not a problem. You know, the interview is over. This will not be used to judge you. But let me ask you this Microsoft interview question. What he said was, why are manhole covers round? <laughs> and I looked at him, and I blinked. And then I said, well, tell you what, I will answer that question if you answer this one for me. They said, sure, go ahead. I said, why do firemen wear red suspenders? <laughs> to keep their <laughs> pants up. And he looked at me and went, uh, I don't know. And, and, and that has been my attitude of those silly riddle questions. It's like a Zen Cohen. It's like, come on. <laughs> so ever since then, I've kind of collected them. And it started literally with that one question. And then I heard a couple more. I asked around. And I put six of them up on my website. Six. Hmm. I don't know how many there are up there now, but it's probably close to 100. So is there any answer to the manhole question? There is. There's several. My most favorite answer, this is the famous answer, is um, a manhole cover is round because the hole is round. Mm -hmm. Well, if you made it square, it'd be possible to uh, to drop it into uh, into the hole. Yeah. Yeah, that's the that's the more logical answer and a very good one. And another good one is um, because they're damn heavy and you, it's a lot easier to roll them than yeah. it is to carry them. Yeah. So what is the value of common LA anyway? No, that's okay. We we won't get on that. Well, I'm more wondering why firemen wear red suspenders. <laughs> it's to keep their pants up. That's the answer to that one. That's like how many six-cent stamps in a dozen. Yes, exactly. Uh, two, right? Right. <laughs> okay, so let's move on to uh, Sells Brothers News. Okay, so Sells Brothers News is just a newsletter for people that don't even want to surf to my website, they don't have RSS, but they would still like to know what goes on on the website. So okay. I just send that out every couple of weeks to voluntary subscribers that want to know what's going on on my site. Okay. And so that's your basic newsletter. That's Here's what I'm basic doing. newsletter. And Chris Sells on .NET is obviously more technical? or Actually, um, so the stuff I post on my website could hardly get more technical in most cases. I'm a pretty technical guy, but the um, the format of the newsletters are very different, and and who owns them? I run my own newsletter, which is just like five things, the top five things that happened or that I that happened to the website in the last two weeks. You know, here's three sentences and a link if you care. Right. The goal is to have the whole email in like one page, so you can say if there's anything useful in it or not right yeah. away. Yeah. But the um, the other newsletter is from uh, Windows Developer Magazine, and they came to me and said we'd love it if you would do a newsletter for us. And it would be just, you know, content, and they send it out um, every other week, and it's just 500 words of an actual article. So the content is actually part of the newsletter. As opposed to with mine, it's just links. Okay. Well, actually, I have a, a question to kick this off, uh, and it concerns Calm. 
And uh, I know that that's what you guys do a lot of, or have uh, have a lot of knowledge in. Yeah, I used to. I, I gave it up. Right. Gave it up for Lent? I did, and uh, that and Catholicism, but yes. So my question has to do with calm, and specifically, like, why calm objects take so long to uh, be created and destroyed, and as, you know, relative to .NET objects, and, and you know, we heard Mark Anders say, you know, .NET objects are much, 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 much lighter than. Well, I want to know how much, you know, and I, I want some numbers that I can that I can tell my students. Four, four, four is the number, forty-two. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for what? That's interesting. I mean, yes, the the the, uh, the reason that uh, com objects are bigger is because um, they have to implement a ton of stuff themselves. For example, a, a com server. Is about a thousand lines of code before you get anything done. Hmm. Literally, in terms of self-registration, in terms of um, uh, just exposing the right APIs to the operating system, in terms of exposing the right uh, objects, the class factory objects, and the reference counting, all of that ha stuff has to be done in each and every COM server. COM server meaning a COM EXE a DLL, or DLL. Or EXE. Yellow right. yeah. Because the the COM protocol is so lightweight, all it says is an interface is a pointer to a pointer to a table of pointers. The rest is up to the implementer. Okay. And ATL and MFC and Visual Basic all make that you know pretty. Now you're in an ASP page and you say uh, create object, you know my class. What happens at that point? So what happens there, if you call co-create instance, or you know the, the Visual Basic in, uh, uh, equivalent, which is create object, right? what it does is it, it takes the information you give it. The class name. So, for example, in, that, for, in Visual Basic, it takes a, you know, uh, what, Microsoft.excel. Yeah. Right. What it does is it takes that, um, that's called a programmatic ID or a prog ID in the trade, and we go and look that up in a specific place in the registry, HCLE classes root. Now that look that up in the registry, I mean, if you break that down for me, that's a that's a slow process, isn't it? That's 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 loading um, uh, an, uh, a database text in database. Yeah, it's a it's a very primitive database too. Yeah. Essentially, they tried to build the lightest weight database they could, mm -hmm. and they do a bunch of caching to make sure that the second time you look in this certain area in the registry. That it's faster, right. but then you know caching leads to. Um, but all you have to do to figure that out is pull up RegEdit and search for something, and oh my God, you're there for a long time. Yes. Yeah. All right. So you're going through iDispatch interfaces when you do what you're describing. Okay. So I haven't even got to what interfaces <laughs> okay. are comma okay. yet. All I've gotten to is we go and look in a well-known place in the registry and say, ah, this prog ID maps to this class ID, which is just a 128-bit unique number. A GUID. A GUID. Yeah, absolutely. Guid is, you know, the the East Coast pronunciation. Guid, like yeah, druid. On the, yeah, on the uh, <laughs> on the West Coast we say guid. A druid guid. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we take that guid and we go to another com API called CoCreate Instance, which takes the guid, goes back to the registry, and says, okay, for this class ID, what's where, what's the DLL or the XE that goes along with the server? Another search. Yes. And then, once we find the DLL, it's most often a DLL. Yeah. Unless you're doing, like, Olay embedded goo. Um, it will call load library on that DLL, bring it into memory. It'll mm -hmm. call git proc address, calling uh, DLL git class object. It will call the entry point, and this is where we cross the boundary 
into uh, the server, all the, all the DLL or all the the, the runtime, the com runtime, if you will, has done is load the DLL in the, in the memory and call an API. The rest right. is all done by the server, including right. all the code needed to put all those keys in the registry for the com runtime right. to find it in the first place. Yeah, so that's when we talk about plumbing code. VB programmers have been pretty much shielded from the com plumbing, but C++ programmers didn't have it so lucky, did they? Oh, in fact, C++ programmers, to be successful, had to view it as... Um, evil that that plumbing code was hidden from them. Right. Certain C++ libraries tried to hide it from them, and, and the problem is that um, so little is provided by the operating system that it's inevitable that you have to dig into the lowest depths of that stuff almost on every project. So like the, the C++ programmer coming of age, if you will, in the day of Windows 95 had a much, much more daunting task in front of them to, to do com than a C-sharp programmer now doing .NET, did they not? Oh, oh my God. I mean, night and day. Yeah. It, it's, uh, it's, it, you could easily compare it to the C programmer coming, uh, and the ASM programmer. I mean, yeah. it was that much different. ASM assembler. Yeah, I mean, in, the, in, in those days, you had to program C++ so flawlessly. Right. You know, that even if it compiled, you only had a 50-50 chance it might actually work. Well, Mark, I think... Whereas now, with, with .NET, you could fall on a keyboard and get um, <laughs> syntactically correct C-sharp code. Well, Mark, this explains our thing about, uh, you know, we've been on a harangue against uh, uh, case sensitivity or insensitivity and uh, <laughs> case sensitivity in C-sharp. Hey, hey. And, hey, and you, know, I, you know, my question is, you know, do... If if that wasn't there, would C++ programmers not think this is a real language? Well, it turns out that, you know, I'm hardly unbiased, right? I'm an old-time C and C++ programmer. But you're programmer also a VB guy. And and now a C-sharp programmer. Yeah. I know VB, but I'm a C-sharp guy. Okay. And, um, you know, it turns out that case uh, sensitivity is the new Hungarian notation. Do you, you guys okay. ever... Right, right. So if you do a private variable, you're going to camel case it, something like that? Right. Yeah, I mean, essentially, private variables or local variables are going to be the lowercase name of something. Right. And the question is what? Now, C++ programmers and, uh, aren't used to typing very much. When compared to, to VB programmers, you write a novel, right, every time you sit down. Uh, excuse me? C++ yeah. programmers don't write very much code? Oh, no. Well, they, all, they spend all their time writing classes so that they don't have to write very much code. Uh, last time I checked, Chris, a class was code. Yes, I know, but if you look at what it takes to write a class versus what it takes to write a Visual Basic class... So you're saying that... Wait a minute now. C++ programmers write less code than VB programmers? Uh, I want to know how you figure that, but, uh, but first, Chris, if you guys don't mind, let's uh, take a pause and pay the bills. Hey, listen up now. I want to tell you about the Windows Developer Network online at windevnet.com. This is a portal and a single point of access for Windows and .NET developers looking for timely and technical Windows coverage. The content comes from a variety of leading programming publications, such as Windows Developer Magazine, Dr. Dobbs Journal, Software Development Magazine, C and C++ Users Journal, New Architect, and more. So up there, you're going to find articles, book reviews, audio and video streaming media seminars, 
interviews and presentations, and uh, it's really exciting. Uh, this site has generated a lot of attention, lots of positive comments, and there's currently about 6,200 registered users, so definitely check out uh, the Windows Developer Network at windevnet.com. Now let's get back to our interview with Chris Sells here on .NET Rocks. Okay, we're back on .NET Rocks, and we're talking with Chris Sells from Developmentor and uh, SellsBrothers.com. Uh, before the break, we were talking about uh, C++ programmers, and and uh, Chris, you, you said that C++ programmers actually write less code than VB programmers. You can't mean that. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. Okay. They think they write less code. Okay. Right? Because Visual Basic has 90% of what you need to build most stuff in it already. Right. They mastered so the, the art of the black box. the fact that it's more verbose on a per-class basis, who cares? You only have to write three of them. Right. Whereas C++ programmers have almost nothing. Right. Clean slate. Um, and they have to write hundreds of classes to get anything useful done, but each individual class looks smaller, and okay. therefore they feel superior. <laughs> Well, I'm glad someone finally explained really? it so even I can understand it. Yes, the C++ programmers are, are very elitist, and uh, yes. they have a very specific psychology, which well, I've I think, studied for a long time. I think I would have a great sense of accomplishment if I went through all that bullshit just and, and was able to come out with, a, with code that didn't crash. Oh, it's not, it's not a matter of uh, accomplishment. These guys are elitist. <laughs> if they can actually write working code, they think they're gods on earth. <laughs> Sorry, if we get to actually write working code in C++, we think we're God's under. So you're an elitist as well. So you're an admitted elitist as well. Oh, very much. And in fact, my whole website is littered with, hey, look at this cool thing I was able to actually make it work. (laughs) Well, hey, Chris, do you think, uh, do C++ developers have uh, kind of a harder road uh, to go down than maybe a Java guy does just because... They're not able to do things at, at the level they're used to. Actually, I think that C++ programmers have a harder time because they're able to do things at a level several times higher yeah. than they're used to. Yeah. They're, they're, they're more productive, and this is a they problem for them. They don't trust it, really. That's right. Yeah. yeah, they're shipping code in two weeks and thinking it can't be right. Yes, and that's the thing, right? I mean, if you type all those news and you don't type any deletes, that just seems suspicious, right. don't you think? And that brings me to a, around to a good topic, which is the garbage collector. Um, VB programmers, they've been shielded from this whole idea of garbage collection, geez, ever since Quick Basic. I mean, oh, we've never, I would disagree. We've I never had disagree. to, well, okay, except for setting forms to nothing uh-huh. and all that. But here's the funny thing. You do that, and somebody sits down, and an expensive consultant says, oh, you forgot to do that. Would okay. you have, like, a... Uh, the application fall over because it's not releasing uh, any of its memory. Okay, but but you never know I, why. I understand what you're saying, but in general, you know, uh, to get a hello world program working, the user, the you know, we can create a string. I'm talking about primitives here. We can create a string. We can set it to something. We can use it, and then we don't have to worry about anything that happens after that. Whereas the C++ programmer and even C programmers before them have always had to deallocate memory. Actually, um, C++ and C programmers had two places to put memory. Yeah. And Visual Basic programmers only had to have one. Right. Um, and in fact, uh, the memory um, was in very different places. Well, in, in very similar places in between Visual Basic 6 and VB.net. Yeah. But ho- how it was managed by the underlying operating system is vastly different. Right. So coming around Sorry, to my coming, coming around to my question uh, about garbage collecting. Um, 
the uh, you know it's the the whole point of the dispose method and the finalizer being expensive and and what the heck can I do? Um, I I've taught people you know the standard stuff that I that I believe is right and uh, there just doesn't seem to be any easy solutions to to forcing garbage collection to happen. Uh, and making sure that something is cleaned up so we can reuse the variable. Um, and I know that this is an issue for you because you're actually trying to put reference counting back into the framework. So why don't you just explain that whole situation for the listener? How, how much of this story do you want? I have a long history with I want to hear it. I want to hear the story. I think this is yeah, Give so, it to us, Chris. Give it to us. I All think right, this you is can edit it out later, but here's the story. Yeah. So about... 97, 98, when COM was certainly suddenly becoming popular, there was this thing called uh, ATL, which, which I had kind of left out of my memory altogether because I was spending my time reading Java in a nutshell from O'Reilly and Associates. I was going to be developmentors first, Java instructor. Now, before then, I had been done years, like six, seven years of C++, and it was just ingrained in my in my pores. I oozed. C++ syntax when I sweat. And so I'm reading this book about Java, and I get to the section that says, there's this thing called a finalizer, which is where you put cleanup code for your object, but it's not guaranteed to be called. And I thought, what? Because in C++, I have something called a destructor that is where I put cleanup code for my object, but it is guaranteed to be called, and I even know exactly when it will be called. So it's deterministic. I know exactly when that function will be called. Whereas in, in Java, suddenly, you know, I have this function, and I didn't even know if it would be called, let alone when. And so the, 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 I didn't have the terms then, but the schism between deterministic and non-deterministic finalization uh, was born. And I, I, I couldn't get over it. I checked the spec. The spec agreed. There was a little function where you could actually... Um, request that the garbage collectors someday maybe think about maybe collecting garbage, but that was the best you could do in Java. And I, I stopped. I, I, I was not developmentor's first Java instructor. I couldn't face it. I went and spent three years doing HCL, and I was very happy. And .NET's no different. .NET is no different than Java was when it comes to, well, actually, that's not true. It has the same basic mechanism, which is it has a function, a virtual function in the object-based class called finalize, and you can provide an implementation to, of it, although it looks like a destructor in C-sharp, which just bothers me no end, because it isn't, right? It's this finalizer. Now in .NET, at least in C-sharp, you get a guarantee that says this um, finalizer will be called as the app domain is shut down in .NET. However, you can't specifically shut down the app domain. Oh, that's not true. I mean, when you're, for example, if you exit um, all the threads in an app domain, or the last thread, or the main thread in the app domain, or whatever, right? I mean. Oh, okay. Yeah. I all mean, right. you know, when the, essentially when the process shuts down, your cleanup code will be executed. Well, that's true. But what I meant was, but you it, know, forcing the f garbage collecting with a GC collect doesn't necessarily guarantee that that's going to. Actually, for, you're right. You have to do two things to force your finalizers to be yeah. called. You have to first say collect, which goes through and says. Okay, all of these guys, you over there, you're happy, you don't have finalizers, we'll take your memory and you'll be fine. All you guys, your second class citizens, you have finalizers, you go over there and wait your turn for the background thread to come yeah. and call you. Yeah. And some and someday it will. So and you can force that 
um, with another call on the GC called um, Wait for Finalization, I believe mm -hmm. is the name of the API, which will actually run through that queue and call all the finalizers. But you should never call either of those functions. Right, right. Never, never, never. <laughs> right. Well, what's your thoughts about implementing uh, iDisposable and creating a dispose method and calling GC suppress finalize? So, so the Java so what what happened was, I noticed this in .NET. Now, I could see the writing on the wall, right? I I could avoid Java because it wasn't Windows, right? It wasn't Microsoft. And I could go and do COM and ATL and be happy. But I saw .NET and I said, this is the thing that I will be spending the next five years of my life on. <laughs> I better make some peace with this finalization thing. So at an early design preview at Microsoft, I raised my hand and said, um, yeah, what about this resource management thing? You know, there's this issue with non-deterministic finalization. And they looked at me and they said, yeah, yeah, that's the way the Java guys do it. Shut up. That's the way we're going to huh. do it. Because five years of research on Java says that that's okay. Nobody has any problems. Of course, they did. They just didn't know. Question, but let me interrupt you here. Why wouldn't, why wouldn't it be okay to implement either way? So, so we could implement a method that would be lightweight, that would absolutely guarantee that data is destroyed. After all, memory is memory, and uh, the garbage collector is going to get around to it anyway. Why not have the option? The option of? The option of destroying an object, like a, a, a traditional destructor, or letting the garbage collector do it. So it turns out that um, for memory-rich systems, which is what we're building today, Right? With, the, with the cost of memory so low, we're building memory-rich systems that have so much memory that we can actually improve the performance of the application considerably by batching um, calls to free memory. Instead of, because in, yes. in the unmanaged world in C++ and in COM, every time that object was no longer used, bam, the finalizer, the COM finalizer was called, which was great because you could close sockets and, and close file handles and close database connections immediately, which was good because those were precious resources, but it would also return the memory. And what happened is you had all kinds of, well, it took time yeah. to put that memory back, and you had fragmented memory, which means it took time now to find memory. Yeah. Whereas in .NET, what happens is finding memory is just going to the end of the heap and saying, oh, here, here you go, here's some bytes. Right. That, there's no finding of holes. There aren't any holes. Right. Because when um, we do a garbage collect, the garbage collector goes through, finds all the holes, and removes them by changing the pointers to the objects to point at new memories so that there's no holes. Hmm. Right? Which makes things oh so much faster. Yeah. Right? So from a memory standpoint, the garbage, the, uh, the reference tracking garbage collection, that's what, we're, what it's called, reference tracking garbage collection, is um, exactly what you want. And for a lot of systems, it works really well. The downside is because we don't collect that memory, there's no time to actually call the finalizer in a deterministic fashion. And, and that's the problem why, there is, yeah. you know, you, you're creating file objects, you're creating database objects. These guys have real resources in the system. Yeah. They have, and they're, you know, there's only a limited number of them. There's only a limited number of file handles. There's only a limited number of sockets or database connections, especially yeah. database connections. That's is, a big deal. Is this why, like, when you use a, a socket, which is a topic near and dear to my heart, when you use a socket and you shut it down both ways and then close it and then try to create a new socket in that variable, sometimes you'll have res residual problems? Actually, I've never seen that, so I would be interesting. Um, okay. I, I do know this. If you don't properly shut down the socket, and the, 
problem yeah. with sockets is, and files in general, is you have sockets and socket readers. Yes. And files and file readers. Yeah. And they both have close functions. Right. And when do you call what? Right. And how do you know that you've really closed the thing you're actually interested I close, in? Closing? I close them in the reverse order I opened them in. I pray to God that that's the right way. <laughs> that should be safe. Yeah. That should be safe. So the, the general problem isn't memory. Memory is cheap. The, the, the way the garbage collector works for right. memory is exactly perfect. However, it's doing the exact wrong thing for each and every other resource. So why are finalizers so expensive, and, and how expensive are they to implement, and why? So final, the reason finalizers are expensive is because when compared to just moving some memory around or checking if memory is used in, and freeing it in big chunks, um, calling individual member functions and waiting for the finalization to happen, that's expensive. And in fact, okay. the garbage collector will only give you a certain amount of time before it whacks your finalization method. So in, uh, Right, so there's no guarantee that a finalizer's code will finish? That's correct. Yeah. You have to be quick. Right. But mostly what you want to do is just close the dang file. Yeah. Right, so it's not generally a problem. So, of course, I'm still wanting you to talk about dispose methods. Uh you right. know, what what what's your uh, your two cents on that? Sure. So, sorry. Like I say, this is a long story. Um, so the 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 basic problem is that the memory is managed properly, but every other resource is managed badly, and there's no way for the object to know when the last client has said, "I don't need you anymore." Okay. The, like in the com world, there was ref counts, and as soon as that reference count went to zero, bango, we knew nobody was using us anymore, and we could we could flush all our resources. So we don't have that in .NET. So what we needed, and I complained loudly eventually, and they heard, and I said, we need something because every object in the world is going to have a close, it's going to have a dispose, it's going to have this function, and i got to write client code, to, and I have to be a programmer, I have to know what this object's close method's called, but I have to write client code to remember to call all that stuff. Could you please add reference counting? And they said, no, it's too expensive. But we will standardize the protocol for you. So you always know what the name of the function is to call. And they put that standardization of that protocol into an interface called iDisposable. So are you telling me that you're responsible for the dispose method? I, well, I, I'm responsible for the using statement in C-sharp, too. But don't blame me. That's not the solution that I asked for. <laughs> That's not what I meant. <laughs> I am not, I'm not the one that, that I think asked that, for that. That looks pretty good on a resume, don't you think, Mark? Yeah, man, that's great. <laughs> I convinced Microsoft to put the dispose method in the using method. In. Well, officially, that's not the case. But okay. according to legend, that was my bitching. And, you know, the subsequent megabytes of emails of people agreeing or disagreeing on, a, on the development or .NET mailing list that eventually yielded a solution. That's, and that's pretty the cool. the solution they came up with. So is it a good solution? Well, it addresses part of the problem. It addresses the here's the standard protocol, which says, that, but it's a much different protocol than the COM protocol. And by, by protocol, you just mean a method name that's I'm standard. Sorry, yes, a well-known interface, a well-known method, a well-known action that every client can take on every object that has a precious resource in it. If they want ask to. Ask it, yeah. do, do you have a precious resource? I'm done with you. Oh, you do? Okay, right. dispose. Mm -hmm. Right, that's the protocol. Yep. So, you know, they standardized the protocol, which and, and then after they standardized the protocol, they built in the using block to give us back that kind of C++ scope-like, you know, this is a block, I've got this object. When we're done with this block, please also dispose this object. Okay. And that's what they built it for.
you'll notice that Visual Basic has no such construct. Okay, so um, no such construct as what? There's no using block in Visual Basic. Well, there's a dispose method. That's there not the is same, a dispose though. method, but you have to remember to call it, and you have to write a try-catch block. Okay, it's the same thing, but it's just a different no, no, implementation. No, no, no. Well, well, it's more work on the VBN to get it But done. it does the same thing. It does the same thing. You write a try-catch or a try-finally block in Visual Basic, yeah. and remember to, to ask for iDisposable and call dispose on all the objects that you've acquired. Right. That's the same as a bunch of using blocks in C Sharp. Got it. Right, the compile that's just syntactic sugar for try catch That's all I'm as saying. Far as yeah. The C sharp compilers. Concerned. Okay. Okay, so and, so and you of have this. They only put it in C sharp because I was a C sharp programmer, and I, they knew I wouldn't complain if they didn't put it in Visual Basic. So you should never, Im, Im, you should never uh, use your sub finalize override finalize. No. Is no, that no, what you're no. saying? No, that is not what I'm saying. Okay. You should if you've got and like you're building a file handler, right? If you've got an object that holds on to a precious resource. Yeah. And by the way, most of the time you don't. Instead, what you do is you're writing objects that hold on to objects yeah. that are provided by the framework that hold on to resources. Mm -hmm. right? But if you're holding you know, an object that's got a resource that has to go away as soon as possible, you implement the iDisposable protocol, you implement the dispose method, and you also implement the finalize method. Okay. And in C Sharp, you do that by providing a destructor. Right. Okay. What do you what do you do in VB? I'm not even sure. Uh, you um, you actually just go up to the uh, the 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 menu on the the drop down on the right it's side. It's a term function, isn't it? The right hand side, and you override sub finalize. Oh, the, sub finalize. Uh, so you do actually yeah. implement the finalize method. Mm -hmm. Well, that's yeah. the way it should have been. And then you can uh, you can either uh, if you want to use the dispose method, you can you can implement i disposable, or you can or just, you can just write a dispose method. Right. Period. Right. And you know as long as the the signature is the same. Uh, it'll call it, yep. even if you don't implement the interface. Kind of like sub-new. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, it, I, I thought so myself. Uh, but it works. Oh, wait a minute, though. But, I mean, that's not the same as asking for iDisposable and calling dispose. That's just the same as the client calling the dispose method. Yes, uh, but it... However, I believe, and uh, Mark, quote me if I'm wrong, correct me if I'm wrong on this, I believe that just by doing that, that VB... Oh, cool. ...puts that implements implementation in there for you automatically. Yeah, I I believe it does. So, you know, you don't you don't have to go as far as implementing the interface. That's cool. So, well, it it is in a way, but you know, we get back to um you know, once again, VB is shielding you from some of the underlying details that you might want to know. I teach sure. people to use the implement statement and to go up and let the let the code be written for them. Well, the skeleton yeah, I like that too. Now, the problem, of course, with the iDisposable um, uh, protocol is somebody has to remember to call it. Right. And what if they don't? For example, it is a lot harder in Visual Basic to write try finally than it is in C Sharp to use a using statement. So you're basically telling people what we do as well, and I think you're going to say that you call the dispose from the finalize and then say suppress finalize from dispose. There you go. Yeah. 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 What you want to do is in the dispose, you want to say, don't call my finalizer, I'm all set. Right. By calling the suppress finalize method. But in your finalizer, if somebody forgets, which yep. is by definition, right, that you've gotten to your finalizer, then you should go and clean up those resources. Now, how much overhead is that going to add? Um, well, if the client, this is the beauty, right? If the client is using you appropriately, none. If the client uses you badly, 
then it'll you that finalizer will be called someday later. Okay, wait a sec. So so just by implementing the finalizer, that's not what takes time. It's actually when it's called. That's and, where. And in fact, the the reason it takes so long is because the garbage collector says, "Oh, this is this is an implementation of finalizer. We're going to put this on a background low priority thread and get to this someday." Ah. Yeah, this is kind of like insurance in cases you you've got to have it in there. Oh, you absolutely, there are lots of cases where you absolutely have to have it in there. And in that case, you hope the client is calling dispose well, so we, that your finalizer never gets needed. That's interesting because I saw one of your guys up there at uh, Dev Connections, Ted. Ted Newark. Ted Newark. Yeah, that's him. Who was telling his audience never, ever, ever, ever implement the sub-finalizer. Yeah, he and I have, um, uh, we disagree on that. Huh. Not only that, not only do, I mean, if you implement iDisposable, you should be implementing the finalizer. Yeah. You should also, in your finalizer, put system.debug.assert false. Yeah. So that the developer can find, oh, hey, I forgot here. I, I blew the protocol. Hmm. Good. So when, when Ted uh, says that it degrades performance, what, is, what exactly does he mean? What, it, what he means there is um, now there's a bunch of memory that the garbage collector can't free until the... Um, the thread uh, gets the background thread gets around to calling those finalized methods, okay, and that can cause performance degradation. I see. That's why you put the assert false in your finalizer so that the developer can can notice. So it's really only if you don't call I dispose the dispose method that that finalizer executes. That's right, and that's otherwise where, it never executes. And that's what takes so much time is for that thing to go away. Right, and the memory, um, the you know the 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 degrade. Aggregation and performance because of that memory that you know has right, to but it's around. only right there at the end of the life of that object. It's right. not through the life of the object that you get no. a performance degradation. No, okay. no, it's only at the end. That's very. It's. I'm glad you've cleared that up for me because it didn't make any sense. Sure. What I was, what well, I was that's what understanding. I'm yeah, this has been a, a great discussion, Chris. Well, let me throw in one more interesting tidbit about I disposable, mm-hmm. and then I'll be done. Um, it turns out that the you know the code to re- implement the dispose method and to call suppress finalize properly and to impl- override the finalizer and to call dispose and you also need a little flag that says hey am I being de- called at the end of my lifetime mm-hmm. in which case I shouldn't be touching any of the other objects that yeah. are in me or am I being called by the client in which case I can go and party on those objects all I want right um, that whole protocol is um, implemented in the base class. Um, of system dot, uh, or system dot component model dot component. Most of what makes a component a component is that it implements iDisposable and it implements the finalize and it funnels all of those properly um, uh, optimized for you to a single method call you implement called dispose that takes a single boolean. That's the disposing boolean that you see in a, in a VB form. Absolutely. Yes. Dispose method. Yes, and that's all back to what is the appropriate protocol for a, uh, an object that holds resources. Great. And components, things like timers or um, proce- uh, process monitors or whatever, right, those, are, those all have um, resources, and they need to know when the form shuts down so that they can reclaim their resources. Yeah, very cool. And we'll be right back with Chris Sells on .NET Rocks. Hey, did you know that starting with the January 2003 issue of Windows Developer Magazine, Dino Esposito is going to be writing a column called Inside.net. 
and that's going to look into the underused and underestimated classes and interfaces in the .NET framework, either using the CLI source or decompilers as a reference. You know, .NET provides lots of new classes for effective software development, and understanding the design rationale between each class is the key to building lean, mean apps. So this column inside .NET is going to delve deep into the internals of the framework and provide practical examples to help you get the most out of .NET. And in his first column, Dino's going to review the many collection classes now available in .NET, discussing the interfaces for each class. He lists the various classes by complexity and provides a really handy set of rules to pick up the right class to contain your data. So check out Windows Developer Magazine and uh, Dino Esposito's Inside.NET article. As far as I'm concerned, it totally rocks. So let's get back to our interview with Chris Sells where we're talking about uh, the dispose method and finalizers and uh, all that great stuff right here on .NET Rocks. Stay tuned. The uh, developers uh, in my classes, usually it takes some time to uh, get straight the difference between a class and a component because they're looking at it as something they add to the project, not really uh, you know, what the component does. The component, um, and I think you said it before, but I just like to say this as many times as I can because it's a point of confusion. The component has code in there to let Visual Studio work its magic, to let it take the properties that you set in the property window and write code in the initialize component method and manage that code so that if you remove the component, it's gone. It has a rich design time interface, not necessarily a runtime interface. And uh, it also has a container that it can contain other components. And um, other than that, in the disposing method, I mean, those are pretty much the, the highlights of what a component is. Would you have anything to add to that list? Um, actually, I would put it slightly differently. Definitely the component, uh, the component base class implements that disposing protocol I told you about. Mm -hmm. So all you have to do is implement the dispose method. Or right. not, if you don't have any resources. Right. And then it turns out that the, the namespace itself has a ton of attributes that say, this is descriptions, these are the properties I want to expose to the designer, these are the properties I don't care about exposing to the designer, here's cool. my icon, all that stuff. None of it represents code. Right. Right. The component itself, the component base class itself, has uh, no code for integrating into uh, Designer. Essentially what happens is the designer walks up to a DLL, an assembly, and says, give me a list of all your components, which is just a list of classes that derive from components. Yeah. And I'll throw those in the toolbox, and they can drag and drop those, and I'll use .NET Reflection to build that property browser, but the component itself doesn't have to do any of that. Hmm. Now, it turns out there's all kinds of extensibility hooks if you want to do fancy things. And, in fact, I'm writing um, an article with a friend of mine, um, uh, Michael Weinhardt of Australia. He and I are writing an article about um, how to build a component and a control that integrates into VS.NET using all of this cool stuff. Cool. So the focus of a component really is the design, the designer, the Visual Studio side? It's, it's, re they, I, it's really two things. Yeah. Right, that it's a class that is non-visual that you can provide this, um, uh, metadata so right. that a, a designer, not just VS.NET, but a designer could consume it. Okay. And, of course, it's that whole resource uh, management. Right, model. with iDisposable. Right. Well, Which, uh, by the way, the designer also generates code to take advantage of. Yes. So let's, uh, let's take a phone call. Hello. Hey. What's going on? Who's this? This is Rich Sabo from Atlanta, Georgia. 
Hey, Rich, how you doing? I'm better and better every day. You got a question for uh, Chris Sells? Actually, I ended up with two questions I'd like to ask him. Um, I also teach the Microsoft Technologies and was working with a group that does a lot of, of Windows applications, and they have the mask edit control that they're using in their current applications. I was wondering if there's any way to duplicate that in the .NET world or if you see anything coming that might help. Good. Good question. So, hi, Rich. How are you doing? Just fine. The name sounds familiar. Where do you work? Um, I used to work, actually, I used to work with Mark, and you and I, I think, met at one of the .NET uh, developer trainings. Okay. Okay. So, um, the answer to your question is um, multifaceted. As you probably already know, there is no mast edit control built into uh, .NET in WinForms or any other place. Right. Um, the, the first thing I would do is... Um, uh, well, let's see. Is there a budget associated with this? Are you allowed to pay for some reusable code that you might want to use? Uh, what, they, what they've got is an application that's a pretty specific one for their industry. But, I mean, are they allowed to buy, say, a third-party component? Um, I don't know. They're redeveloping their whole application right now, moving it to .NET. So I'm sure, I'm absolutely positive, although um, I can't point you at a specific vendor off the top of my head, I'm positive that one of the old-time ActiveX control guys has um, built a mass static control for .NET. So that would be where I'd start. And the yeah. nice thing about commercial code is that you have somebody to complain to, and they are supposed to listen. Who knows if they actually do. The other place I'd go is um, I'm a big fan of Code Project, codeproject.com. Um, they have a bunch of really great free controls. And the reason I point you at them is because I happen to know that the, my own kind of uh, source available uh, .NET application framework, Gingis, um, doesn't yet have a masked edit control. However, if your client um, builds one, which you could absolutely do by deriving from system.windows.forms.textbox and handling keystrokes and checking um, to make sure that they, you know, work, um, then, you know, what they should do is contribute it to Gingis, and we will get it out to the world. Mm, okay. Second question I had is with ADO versus ADO.net. I know when we first started in the .NET world, um, really the advice was if you've got a connected server-side cursor, to just go ahead and continue to use ADO. Um, now that we've got a couple of applications um, up there and running and shaking it out a little bit, is that still the overriding advice? And do you see ADO.net um, increasing their support for connected operations? So. Um so I'm not really a database guy. I play one on TV, and I, <laughs> I, I, I uh, know some really smart database guys. And I, uh, I uh, worked with uh, Sean Wildemuth on his pragmatic ADO.net. And um, so pretty much everything I know about ADO.net, I learned uh, from Sean. But um, I don't see uh, ADO.net adding connected operations anytime soon. Me either. And I don't think that they should. The, the .NET part of .NET, or ADO.NET, or ASP.NET, um, is very important. It's all about building connected applications. And connected applications perform overwhelmingly better when you're using disconnected data as opposed to connected data. The problem with connected data, of course, is you know, you're holding locks on tables, and you're holding up other clients that need those locks. And so uh, memory is cheap. .NET was built around the idea that you know, clients are just sitting around, client computers are just sitting around with a ton of memory, doing nothing, might as well fire hose the data to them and let them party on it 
and then let the database on the back end go and help somebody else. Right, and that's why Hello World is 12 megabytes. Uh, that's why, well, because memory is cheap. Memory is cheap, it, right. it, and the alternative would suck. The fact that it was uh, 12 megabytes mattered, it wouldn't be 12 megabytes. Right. In fact, we've just come out of that. It was called DOS. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, I, I tell people to consider the alternative you know, the, of the large memory footprint, which is hundreds and hundreds of granular DLLs in the framework that we'd have to constantly be making references to. That would really suck. So we're back to DLL hell in that case. No, we wouldn't be back to DLL. We'd be back to we'd be in reference hell is what we'd be in. <laughs> <laughs> add reference hell. What? Why doesn't this work? Oh, I forgot to add the reference to the uh, text box text property. <laughs> Myself, one of the things that I really wish VS.NET had, um, and I just haven't sit down to, sat down to write it yet, is that it would know it would have IntelliSense for every single assembly on the machine. Yeah. And as soon as you typed in, you know, whatever the namespace keyword is for your language, it would just go ahead automatically, silently, add the reference to your project. So why don't you write that, Chris, and uh, just submit well, it to a be a great little weekend project. Yeah, for you I mean, to hammer you got, out. what what the hell do you do during the day that you can't Nothing. do? Nothing. You're right. I'm just sitting around <laughs> with a lot of free time in my hands. So maybe I will. <laughs> well, does that answer Although your question? The, yeah, that got me there. Got I appreciate it. I, I, I do a lot of teaching, so I, I'm, these are recurring questions at this point. Yeah, you're a you're a um, a long listener to the show at this point too, aren't you, Rich? Uh, yeah, I've um, listened to most all of them at this point. Hey, you know, this is a very good point to bring something up, uh, Rich and uh, you guys, and that is that we've had a, the reason why we've had a lot of callers from Atlanta recently is because people aren't taking the bait and and calling us and sending us questions. And uh, we really need those callers to to uh, to email us at .NET Rocks at Franklin's Net with generic questions about .NET or, or questions for the next guest. Uh, you know, get involved, ask us, and we'll we'll definitely uh, get you on the air. That's right. My long distance bill was was not a lot last month. I, I want to kick it up, man. <laughs> We're not spending enough money. Well, Good thanks, enough, Rich. Guys. All right. Well, thanks for the call, Rich. All right. Talk, nice to, you talk to you, Rich. Bye bye. Bye. So why Sells Brothers? Ah, good question. Actually, the Sells Brothers are the reason that I don't work pretty much 24 hours a day. Um, I do have a brother, but um, he is about 10 years older than I, and he's the only electrical engineer on the planet who doesn't actually like computers. Okay. He's a power engineer guy. And you wanted to freely admit this on .NET Rocks? Uh, that I have a brother that well, doesn't like computers? Well, you're giving away the secret here. You know that. Well, the secret that you're you're uh, deceiving the public with the actually I'm the not Sells Brothers. No, uh, no, no, no. The Sells Brothers <laughs> Sells Brothers company and website is not named after me and my brother. I see. It's named after my two sons. Oh, very clever. Oh, yeah. You. So I was picturing smaller. like the Walton family. You know, the uh, a bunch of brothers. Uh, a bunch of guys. Dot com. Yeah. It's it's kind of funny too because I have I don't know if you guys have seen the logo lately but it you know it, it bears some passing resemblance at a certain unfortunate picture I took or had taken a number of years ago with me and a laptop and little else and um, <laughs> please my, my, for the love of God keep that <laughs> off the net um, but my boys both have Sells Brothers T-shirts in their size and they love to tell their friends how this is my daddy naked. <laughs> Great. 
I don't think I would want to do that, Mark. I would scare people to death, I think. No, I don't, I don't think we need to do that. We're, we we don't quite have the Adonis bill that, uh, you know, would be good for that. Actually, it was funny. I was 50 pounds heavier when I had that picture taken than right. I am now. So n- since you found .NET, you know, everything is lean and mean. Actually, I've noticed that since the bubble burst, me and a lot of my friends have gotten thinner. I think yeah. it's just that we don't have as much money. Also, you're probably spending less time writing code now. You have more time to go to the gym. Yeah, you'd think that was true, except for that's not true. I find I have to work twice as hard. <laughs> so tell me about Gingus. You you mentioned that to Rich a little bit. Um, sounds like a website. Why don't you tell us about it? So the website is GingusGroup.com, and it turns out that there are two spellings of Gingus, very popular. You can find books on Amazon for both spellings. So the first big debate we had was, after we decided to call it Gingus, which was what was the spelling. So it's G-E-N-G-H-I-S group.com. What is it? So Gingus is um, a source available uh, library built on top of WinForms and .NET. Um, the idea is, um, you know, as much as I don't miss um, MFC because it was built before the C++ compiler was complete, um, I do miss a lot of the wonderful features that Mike Blazak and his team built into MSC, like um, command handling, to be able to say, this menu and this toolbar both have the same command. I want to implement it once, not implement it one place and forward it to another. Or um, the idea of document handling, right? This is a view on a document, and when the data is dirty, I want to tell the underlying data model. And when I close the last view, I want somebody to automatically notice and ask the user, would they like to save? Now, There's all kinds of these wonderful features that people need in building real applications. Do you suppose these will be rolled into .NET at some time in the future? I imagine some of them will. They're too, they're, the ideas are too good not to. Too yeah. many people want them. Microsoft yeah. listens. That's they'll good. definitely build, um, build it into you just future, said, some of them. You just but, said something that's very true, and, and that's Microsoft listens. Uh, Pat Hine defines the year 2000 and beyond as the age where Microsoft wants to prove to the world that they play well with others, and they are listening. And and uh, if you are a developer and you have that sort of cynical, you know, they're Microsoft, they can do anything attitude, they they really did a, a 180, didn't they? I mean, it's, impar- it's apparent with .NET where they learned so much from Java and from other technologies that, you know, you teach this to guys who've done Java and they look at VBNet or C Sharp and they're like, ah, it's just like Java. And you're like, well, that's a good thing. You know, they took the best parts of these different systems. They're looking and they're, it seems like maybe for the first time, you know, they're really stretching out to see what works out there and learning from the mistakes of other platforms and uh, listening. Well, it doesn't hurt, too, that, you know, after the burst that Microsoft has been on a giant uh, uh, hiring binge, yeah, hiring um, everyone that's ever invented anything interesting. Right. But definitely, Microsoft has always been about, well, not always, but certainly, um, you know, what interesting things are out there that our customers want. Right. And, you know, it's not all altruistic. I mean, they noticed that there were real benefits in Java, and people were using Java, and they didn't want people to use Java. They wanted people to use Microsoft. And so they did Java 1 better, and they implemented .NET. And it's just amazing that their model seems to be not, how can we outmarket Java, how can we out-litigate our competitors, but, you know, how can we make a better product so that people will use it? That's absolutely what they do. I mean, technically, .NET is fabulous. It's awesome. It really is. 
It rocks, as a matter of fact. Agreed. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so Chris, you're not going to work for Microsoft anytime soon, are you? Well, I'm trying to hold out. I've literally counted like a dozen of my friends that have gone to Microsoft over the last, I don't know, five, six months. And, you know, the, 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 uh, the undertow is growing. But uh, so far, I've been able to hold out. So as you can probably tell by now, MSDN Magazine is our major sponsor at .NET Rocks, but we still want other sponsors. Uh, If you're interested in, in being a sponsor... Blast us off an email at .NET Rocks at franklins.net, or you can send it directly to me, carl at franklins.net. We'd love to talk to you about it. Hey, listen, I'm writing my first article for MSDN Magazine coming up here, and no surprise what a great mag it is. This article is sort of an overview of Visual Studio 2003, which uh, prior to the end of November was codenamed Everett. Now it's official Visual Studio 2003. And Chris Sells is actually writing an article for that same issue, concentrating on Windows Forms in Everett. Uh, but anyway, now let's get back to the conversation. More with Chris Sells from Developmentor and SellsBrothers.com right here on .NET Rocks. Hey, don't you go away. On the phone with us now from Westfield, Mass., is Ron. Ron, you got a question for Chris? Yes, actually, I had a, a couple of them uh... One of the questions was I had a uh, a very simple app that I put together in .NET, VB.NET, that uh, uh, reads in uh, some EDI data and parses it out into a rich text box and, you know, did it on the local machine at home, brought it into work and threw it on the server, which I have full, you know, writes everything in, in this directory and on the, this particular server. And all of a sudden it starts spitting up uh, security violations and I'm like, you know, the old story, well, it worked at home, you know, what's going on here? And I said, well, the only difference is it's on the LAN here, brought it to the local workstation, and all of a sudden it started working. And it was uh, rather disconcerting, like, what's going on here? Uh, that's a great question, Ron. What you're running into is actually um, not a bug, but a feature in .NET. <laughs> and the particular feature is called Code Access Security. And in .NET, unlike... Um, in Windows itself. Windows, every hunk of code has the permissions of the guy running the code, which means, of course, for 98% of the Windows users on the planet, every hunk of code running, no matter where it comes from, has administrative privileges, right? You run it, do you guys run administrative when you're at your workstations? Yeah, well, at least in the IT department, the user yeah, community, though. Yeah, you do, and, we... uh, but, you know, uh, Carl, Mark, do you guys run as administrators? Yeah, when I'm developing, I do. Everyone does. My grandmother runs as administrator, which means that whatever that code comes from, it will, if it's allowed to run at all, have full administrative rights. Um, and so in .NET, they decided to turn that off. What they did was they um, implemented um, a system uh, based on um, where what we know about this code. More, in, uh, generally, it's where it comes from. In does version it come from one, the local computer. Aha! It can do anything. Does it come from the LAN? Oh, the LAN actually is a partially trusted place. We give it a lot of permissions, but not full trust the way we do on the local machine. And, and of course, you, you can extend that to the internet. And the internet, by default, 
um, as of Service Pack 1 in .NET 1.0, says we don't trust code from the internet at all. That makes so, sense. So actually, you know, it, it, it was a problem because you, um, you weren't familiar with it, but that's a whole new security model, um, and, and we like it. Yeah, and what, how case, soon... what happened in my case is that the application loaded, and then when I uh, tried to do a file open, it, it brought up the uh, file open dialog. Well, that makes right. sense. And as soon as it went to do that, it uh, it threw up the security Okay, so, so in the intranet case, you are allowed to show both the file open and the file uh, save dialogs, but you're not allowed to know the name of the file. And hmm. instead, both of those dialog box components provide methods called open file, that whatever the user picked, well, it'll just give you an open stream and say, here you go. So, sure. Chris, if uh, if you're the average uh, VB.net developer out there, and, uh, you know, like we were saying, you, you are in administrative mode when you're you're writing your code, uh, you know, what are some things that you, you need to look at to uh, to get your app running when you, you distribute it? So that's an interesting point. Um, you know, the vast majority, I mean, the, the world is kind of right now broken up into two styles of applications, the kind of applications that are installed with a setup.exe or an MSI on a client's machine, in which case it'll be installed on the local machine and it has full trust, or the style of application, which is really a website where you surf to an URL and you, everything is hosted by the browser. .NET enabled a middle ground. .NET allows you to put an exe on your web server and surf to it like an URL. And it will be downloaded and executed on demand from where, with the permissions from wherever that came. So like, you have the middle ground where you can actually execute an executable across the internet, make sure you always have the current version. And in fact, .NET assemblies are so small, they're, um, they're about the size of, of web pages. On the disk, anyway. Yeah. yeah. On the disk, they're very small, so they're, downloading them is like downloading an, an average web page. Or, um, just slightly bigger than the source, actually. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they do a really good job. So so what you can do is you can have it always up to date. You know, whenever you want to release a new version, you know, of HR452.exe, you update the web server. All the clients the next day surf to that exe, and it downloads and executes on their machine, just like it was a standalone Windows application. So you get the beauty of the distribution, but the rich UI of a standalone uh, Windows app. Yeah, Chris? Yes. Yeah, what we had done in our particular case is most of our current VB6 applications are, are loaded on the uh, on the server and the users execute them from there, of course, they're so, actually installed. So also. you're using the LAN as your distribution mechanism as opposed to a web server. Right. With the idea with .NET where you can easily replace it this way that they're taking it right from the server and then if it has to be replaced, it's in one place. Sure. And in this particular case, I was running with full administrator privileges on my machine. Now, remember, code access security is not .NET security. Code access security is different. It's another layer of security, another model of security built on top of .NET security. So you could run with full administrator privileges all day long. But the feature, remember, this is, keep telling yourself this is a feature. The feature of code access security is, is that it, um, it doesn't award privileges based on who is running the code. It awards privileges based on where that code came from. And by default, unless you change it, if code comes from the intranet, it has fewer permissions than if it comes from the local machine. Right. So what does he need to do to fix this uh, on his clients? Well, assuming he considers this a bug to be fixed, 
what um, what happens is that um, each client has to be given um, something called a uh, a code group. So you uh, some administration has to happen, and that administration can happen via um, you know using tools that ships with the .NET framework, or the administration can happen via an MSI file that awards that creates the appropriate um, entries in the appropriate uh, database. But essentially what has to happen is a code group needs to be created, a custom one that says, by the way, if, an ac if we get um, an assembly from IT web, or whatever the name of your uh, internal website is, or internal uh, server where you're hosting your stuff, if it comes from there, party on. Give it full trust. And in fact, um, you should see later this week um, an article for my Wonders of WinForms column that talks all about what the security model is and how to increase permissions so you can have um, uh, full permissions on on your apps. You can do that with situation. a you can do that with the administrative tool, the .NET Security Wizard. Yes, you can do it with the um, with the wizard. You can say trust and assembly. It's kind of a pain for users to use. Or trust the whole machine for that? that zone. You can you can also apply it to just the machine that increase the security for that. You can you can go to the machine zone. and say I have full trust for everything from the intranet. Yeah. I would recommend that you don't do a similar thing for the internet. Yes. That would be dumb. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it would be a bad thing. You're going to surf to I'm going to fuck up your computer dot com. Yeah. Yes. So what would happen? I'd have to go and uh, address this on every workstation, or is there a centralized way that I could? Let, let me answer that. You know, if there was an easy way for you to touch all those computers and increase the trust of the security, uh, it wouldn't be a very good security model, right? Because if there was just one script that you could just send to all these computers and... And, and, and no one would have to be involved. No one would have to be involved. automatically. That's not much of a security model. That would really suck. Yeah. So that's the deal, is that you do have to touch every one of these machines in some way by an administrator. Now, but you can certainly simplify things. For example, yes. you can write an MSI, and I give the skeleton for an MSI Which is in my a article. Microsoft's uh, installer module? Yes, thank you. Microsoft Setup uh, Information. I'm the oh. acronym police here. Just yes, Microsoft Setup Information, I believe, is the ex expansion of that acronym. Mm -hmm. But it says just a, or a setup.exe that would run the managed code that would add the code group that says if it comes from there, it has full trust. And yes. then once they do that, they only have to do it once. And then from then on, anytime they run an application or an assembly from there, whether it's an XE or a DLL that's loaded, it will have full trust. And they have to be logged on as an administrator when they run that? They need to be logged on as an administrator when they run the, the awarding the permission. But the good news is they don't have to go into any wizards and mess around with settings. That's right. You can just write, um, you can distribute that MSI file right alongside of all the XEs and just tell them, you know, click here first. That rocks. Now, that's one way to do it. There are also there are like things like SMS and Active Directory where you can drop you know MSI files in and they will magically be executed on each machine. But I've never actually seen um, a network administered so well that that actually worked. You mean like using a group policy to uh, install software when someone logs in? Yeah, totally. Yeah, mm -hmm. you can do that too. Could could you also do this if if your organization hasn't rolled out the .NET framework to every workstation? Would a good approach be to have the .NET framework installed in the image that they're going to put out to all these machines? Oh, yeah. Set up so that it, it trusts the intranet. 
You could absolutely do that. Um, it turns out that when you make uh, changes to that security policy, it's just a text file in the right directory. And if you wanted to preload the text file in the right directory from the image where everyone gets .NET, then they'll all have the right permission. But that file has is restricted to only administrators. Right, yeah. but if it's in the image, then whatever right. machine that the image is rolled out to. Exactly. And, in fact, you could use the administrative tools or uh, write code that would mess with the text file. Um, and then, uh, you know, the keys would already be in there. You don't even have to et- enter them with Notepad. Mm-hmm. Cool. So does that answer your question, Ron? Oh, yes, it does. That uh, answers a, a lot of questions. Just remember, it's a feature, not a bug. <laughs> right. <laughs> And uh, it definitely shouldn't discourage you from doing um, rich Windows applications in a in a distributed way. This I see more and more companies going towards this. In fact, I've been involved with a project uh, here in New England with Microsoft Consulting Services that I've trained over a, almost a almost a hundred developers for this project, and uh, from different consulting companies. Huge project, and they recycle developers through this process. There's like five or six teams that are working on different pieces of it. The first version was sort of like, uh, you know, just getting it, just getting what we already had working in ASP.NET. And then the second one was an ASP.NET full-blown application. And then they found that the performance was really bad because all the data kept having to go back to the uh, the web browser back and forth. And a lot of overhead with HTML and keeping things stateful. And they decided to um, to scrap that and go with a Windows Forms distributed smart client. There has been a lot of pushback against the thin client idea, especially since .NET came. And you can get the best of both. Yeah. And you throw remoting in the middle and you got a serious, serious... uh, Or web services or award full trust and you can talk to, to the database directly. There's all kinds of things you can Yep. Serious platform. All right. Well, thanks for calling, Ron. Okay. Thank you very much. Okay. Good night now. Good night. By the way, I just wanted to make one note. I mean, the reason that code access security is so important in .NET is because there was a huge uh, problem when you're building uh, component-based applications that those components could come from who knows where. And unless you're allowed to, on a per-assembly basis, allowed um, award permissions, you have to go back to the NT model that says you can only change permissions on a per-process basis. Yeah. And, of course, that doesn't work with a bunch, lots of little components. They all have to be in the same process for there to be performance. So code access security is really about having security and performance in the same place. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Very good. Well, Chris, any uh, final thoughts before we sign off? Well, wait, I've got a really tough question for Chris before he gets off the phone. Okay. Chris, I know you've worked on an O'Reilly book. How the heck do they figure out what animals to put on the cover? That's funny. The, the very first question that I asked when um, you know I, I got an O'Reilly uh, editor's uh, attention was, you know, how do I pick my animal? And he said, you don't. The the authors do not get to pick animals. In fact, the, they don't even get to really influence the animals. What happens is they have a you know a secret group of artist-like people. And what you do is you say, this is a a little bit about what the book is about, but of course you're describing it to artists, right? So you can't get too technical. Right. And then out of that group, boom, they say, this is your animal. And that's it. There is no, there is no, um, uh, way around it. So, Hmm. um, the only thing, the only two things I can tell you besides that. One is, um, 
all the .NET books are about water creatures of some kind or another because .NET will be um, covering the world like the oceans. And um, It'll be drowning the developers in information. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no doubt about that. <laughs> Hopefully it'll be covering the world like the oceans in a good way. Yeah. Um, and the other thing is I, do, I have heard tell legend of a friend of mine, the only developer that I ever knew who was able to actually pick his own animal. And uh, his name is Peter Drayton, and he's he's written uh, several. He must be an artist. What's that? He must be an artist. No, but he had such a compelling argument that they couldn't turn him away. Wow. Yeah, we actually met Peter at uh, at VS Connections, I think, didn't we, Carl? Oh, that's right, Peter Drayton. Peter Drayton, the greatest. He Mm -hmm. just went to work for Microsoft. He's another of my friends. Very cool. Is there no end to your A list? (laughs) No. So apparently the way he was able to convince them was he was writing a book about C-sharp, the successor to Java in many ways. Yes. So he went to them and said, I, there is this species of dog that has um, been extinct on the island of Java. And there is this, uh, the next uh, species of dog which has replaced it. And that's the animal I need on my cover. Very good. And they, they couldn't argue with him. That's too good. That's a great story. Well, I, I for one, am glad to know, uh, you know, how that process works. Uh, I guess we, we don't know exactly how it works uh, internally, but I always thought that, that the guys that wrote these books were just, you know, coming up with some random animal uh, to throw on the cover. There's always a story. If you ask the author, he will always tell you um, why the artist picked that book. Because you do get a little explanation, maybe a sentence. Yeah. Hey, Chris, um, you write for MSDN Magazine, do you not? I do. Do you write for other magazines besides them? Uh, I have recently uh, uh, written an article um, with a colleague for Windows Developer Magazine. Actually, okay. two, with two colleagues. But other than that... For a long time, I haven't really written for any other magazine besides You've, MSDN. How, how, before MSDN was MSDN, it was uh, Microsoft Systems Journal. Yes, Were you MSDN. reading it back then, too? Oh, my, yes, absolutely. Yeah. For years and years. It's a great magazine. It's a fabulous magazine. What do you got coming up in that mag? So um, we were just, uh, Kirk Farida and I, uh, Kirk is uh, another colleague, a developmentor. He is rewriting ATL internals for the second edition for ATL 7 in VS.net. Very good. And he uh, and I co-wrote an article about using HL7 to build uh, web services, right? What do you do if you want to if you want to build a web service in an unmanaged environment? Okay. There's all kinds of good reasons to do that. Cool. So that one just came out, and um, I'm I've already mentioned the article uh, I'm co-authoring about doing components and controls and integrating them appropriately into VS.NET and the System.Component Model namespace. Mm-hmm. And uh, this week, I'm actually finishing up an article on what's new in WinForms for Everett, for, for .NET 1.1. Yeah. What are some of the other uh, articles of of notable uh, consequence that you want to mention that you have written for past issues of MSDN Magazine? Well, probably the one that has had the most impact and caused the most trouble, and the one I spent probably the longest understanding Perfect. and executing on is the one where I talk about that whole WinForms distribution model in .NET. It's called various things. It's called smart clients. It's called href exes. It's called mobile code. Mm-hmm. It's such a new feature. They have, the community hasn't even decided on the right name for it yet. 
I think. But, but it's the yeah. the idea that you can execute um, an exe on a web server like it was in Earl, yeah. and it'll be downloaded and, and executed on the fly for you. Do you also and what write? That means. Do you also write for MSDN Online? Yes, I'm a I'm a columnist. I write the uh, Wonders of WinForms column for MSDN Online. Cool. So what is um is is that well uh, well received that website MSDN Online? I've gotten actually more email from that um, than I ever have from the printed articles. Wow. Lots of good stuff. And that's free for anybody? Yeah, help yourself. It's at uh, msdn.microsoft.com slash columns. And there's a bunch of great columns on there that I, I surf at regularly myself and read. Yeah, I know Billy Hollis and Rockford Locke do a column there. They do. Yeah, they do adventures in vb.net, I think. Hmm. That's great. Well, it's a great magazine. I'm I'm beginning to write for it myself, and uh, and uh, I've heard nothing but good stuff about it. And I've I've been reading it for years, of course, and uh, nothing, heard nothing but good stuff about writing for it. One thing I I uh, don't like about other magazines I've written for is they they tend to edit out all your good jokes, and uh, that really drives me crazy. That's interesting too, because um, I have had many um, style battles with almost every editor. Um, at every magazine, uh, including MSDN magazine. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've, I've, uh, fought very hard. Um, in my opinion, an article isn't, even as, as cool as it is, as great as it is, as much as it tells you about the technology details you need that minute, unless it also happens to be compelling and somewhat entertaining. Yes. People will never read it. Yeah. And I feel very strongly about that. So everything I write has, has an element of lightheartedness, of entertainment, of, you know, just you. unabashedly making fun of whatever just so I can keep people's attention. And yep. when editors try to edit that out, I don't like it. Yeah, I went through the roof on uh, another popular magazine that uh, I, t- I int- had an introductory paragraph to a uh, new technology article that was just awesome. And it was good writing, I thought, and other people did too. And they took the whole thing out, axed it. Really, My, um, really made me mad. Yeah. That, in fact, it's almost always the first two paragraphs that, one, I consider the most important. Uh, important. Yeah. And two, that uh, Microsoft almost invariably throws away. <laughs> and so I always have to fight to get in the back end. But it's so true, though. I mean, you know, you can tell what it's going to be about by the, by the freaking headline. Yeah, you got to lay a foundation. You know, in the table of contents, there's a little description of what it's about. They know what it's about. Now they want to sit down... You know, with a smoke or a, or, a, or a beer or whatever it is, and, and check it out. Yeah, I often drink beer when I read complicated technical articles. <laughs> I find that helps me digest them a little bit. You better. haven't been talking to Tim Huckabee, have you? <laughs> <laughs> My understanding is Visual Basic guys like to be halfway through their first six pack before they pick up. Oh, that's technical. a low blow. You don't even want to hear what we say about C sharp guys. Oh, feel free. <laughs> I love to hear those. How's too. your hair looking these yeah. days? <laughs> okay. uh, he doesn't know. That's okay. Yeah, we we often joke about the cleanliness of uh, of C sharp programmers. Well, you know, C plus plus required a lot of concentration, and it was very easy to lose track of time and the fact That's that true. you think. That's true. So you can tell C plus plus programmer because their hair is greasy because they don't have time to bathe. That's oh, totally, absolutely. Yes, and body C-sh- odor is a badge of honor. You know, C-sharp the guy's good. C sharp and Java programmers can bathe. You know, once every other day. Because That's right, because there's a little bit of time. There's a little bit of time that they have. And VB programmers always have nice fluffy hair because they get to bathe every morning. Yeah, because they, you know, they don't roll out of bed till about 10. They oh, take no, off no. for the golf course around 3. <laughs> <laughs> the 
and plus they didn't have to worry about get, getting that whole degree before they showed up for work <laughs> in the first place. <laughs> hey, man, do you have any final thoughts before uh, before we say goodbye? Well, I have this little uh, phrase on my website that I uh, I think really sums up uh, what I think is important, and it's uh, uh, think deeply and code well. Very good. Well said. Thank you very much, and uh, we'll my stop pleasure. back again, won't you? Oh, sure. Yeah, man, it's been a great talk, Chris. Uh, thoroughly enjoyed it tonight. My pleasure. Thanks for educating us, and uh, we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. Good night. Good night.